Christ is risen, alleluia. He is risen indeed, alleluia. Extra alleluia over there, I like it. (laughs) This is the season of alleluia, so the more alleluias, the better. That's a traditional Easter greeting among Christians. Christ is risen, alleluia, and the response is, he is risen indeed, alleluia. We'll see if you remember that at the end of the homily. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Why are we here? I don't mean why are we here in the church. I know why we're here in the church. It's Easter Sunday. We're celebrating the resurrection. But why are we here in the world? What is is the meaning of life? This is the big question I want us to think about. Because the dominant secular culture today will tell you that That's a question you have to decide for yourself, that the meaning of life is to make your own meaning. And that sounds nice, I admit. It's got an appeal to it. Unless you start to take it seriously, right? And really think about it for any length of time, because what does it mean? To say that we have to create our own meaning, in effect, it's the same as saying life doesn't really have any meaning, right? That's why we have to create it, because there's no intrinsic meaning to it. There's no real purpose to our existence other than whatever we think up in our head, right? So you're free to ascribe to your life whatever meaning you want it to have, whatever makes you happy, right? And this idea that that life means whatever you want it to mean, it, it grows out of a materialist philosophy that that denies the existence of any kind of metaphysical, spiritual reality. Metaphysics is one of those complicated words, but I think we all are familiar more with the term meta these days. (laughs) Those of us on social media anyway, right? But meta just means like beyond, outside, other. It's, 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 It's above. And so metaphysics is something beyond the physical, beyond the things we can see, touch, hear, and smell. Um, but, but a materialist philosophy says those are the only real things, the things that we can sense, the things that we can measure. Uh, and in that worldview, if that's all that's real, then what that means is over the course of the billions of years of the universe that random al- atoms and elements have all come together and they've reacted to each other in such a way that eventually you and I are here sitting in this church on Sunday morning, right? That life arose because of a series of accidental chemical reactions. And when we die, all those chemical processes will end, and so you and I will end. We'll just disappear into oblivion. And the only good news of secular materialism is that at least we won't know that we're in oblivion because there won't be any us. And that's not a real loss because according to that worldview, there never was really any us to begin with because there's no such thing as a metaphysical person that what we call consciousness and personality, these are just illusions that are created by the physical processes in the brain. So yeah, Go ahead, ascribe any meaning to your life that you want, because it doesn't really matter in the end. That's one story you can believe. But there's another. There's no real reason 
to believe that the universe lacks any fundamental meaning. In fact, it's quite presumptuous of us to assume that what we can see and measure are the only things that exist. It's entirely rational to peer into your microscope or gaze into your telescope and see order and design and purpose at the smallest and the largest scales. And you can discover wonder in the universe if you have eyes open to see it. You, can, you don't have to be a scientist in a lab to do this or an astronomer you know, at an observatory. You can climb to the top of a mountain and you can look across at the landscape. You can watch the sun setting over the hills and see the light playing across the clouds in this brilliant array of color and recognize that that beauty is a work of art. And you might wonder, who's the artist? And maybe you recognize the work of that same artist when you look at the face of a newborn baby. Maybe you can even recognize it when you look in the mirror. You're a work of art. So who designed you, and why? You can ask the question, what's the meaning of my life? That's a reasonable question. And it's reasonable that the answer won't be something that you just imagine for yourself, but actually something greater than yourself. Something that's real. Something that you can discover and be amazed by. You can choose to look at the world in that way. And it's no less plausible than the secular materialist alternative. In fact, it's much more likely because secular materialism is incapable of answering the biggest question, which is, why should there be anything at all? Right? The universe can't create itself. It has a creator. And that means that you have a creator. And that means that you are intentional that you have a purpose. And the good news of this worldview is that you are wanted and loved. That also happens to be the good news proclaimed by Jesus Christ. What we profess in our faith is that God created the universe, not because he needed to, but because he's good. And in this universe of wonder, God created certain beings that weren't merely animal, vegetable, or mineral, but people. That is, creatures made in his own image, creatures with immortal spirits that are capable of knowing and loving. And he gave us this capacity, not only so that we can know and love the world that he had made, but to know and love him, just as he knows and loves each one of us. In other words, we were made for our own sake, to be in friendship with God but something happened. Early on in our existence, that friendship with God was broken. We used the freedom that God gave us to turn away from him. That's the risk that God took by making us free. We had to be free to love him, but that freedom also allows us to hate him, or worse, to ignore him. Sin entered into the world and with it came death, because sin separates us from the source of our life. 
Sin makes us less like God, less like the people that we were made to be. That's why we lose ourselves in sin. We begin to fade away. We become less like who we are. We forget who we are. But God, for his part, he doesn't forget who we are. He never stops loving us. He sees the condition into which we've fallen, and he accounted for our folly in his divine plan. Original sin did not take God by surprise. So in his justice and in his mercy, he goes about setting things right. Without God, we're lost. We're wandering in the wilderness, but he found us. He revealed himself to us, and he began to form a people to himself. He established a covenant with Abraham. He gave his law to Moses. He spoke to us through the prophets. He chose a particular people, the people of Israel, to mold after his own mind and heart. And he said, I will make this people my own. He revealed himself to them, not just as their creator, but as their father. And he instilled in them the hope of a Messiah, an anointed one, one who would come and set things right. Why this people among all others? Because in the fullness of time, when all of the conditions of history were just what they needed to be, God himself would enter into his creation among this chosen people. Emmanuel, which means God with us, was born to a virgin in a small town named Bethlehem. And he was given the name Jesus, which means Savior. The Greek philosophers used the word logos, which means the word, to describe the rational force that they knew must be behind all of existence. And John, who is Jesus' beloved disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, used that same word to describe his master when he wrote, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life. And this life was the light of the human race. This word, this life, this light shining in the darkness came to his own people. And his own people rejected him. Why? Because they were blinded by sin. Sin makes us stupid. Jesus walked among them, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, calling for repentance, preaching mercy and forgiveness, and all the while saying, look at me, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And for this they said, he must die. But like I said, God accounts for our folly. Jesus took their abuse, as Isaiah prophesied that he must. He, the almighty God in the form of man, allowed himself to be accused, arrested, tortured, mocked, sped upon, stripped of his garments and his dignity, and nailed to a cross. And as we did this to our God, 
as he allowed us to do this to him, he said, Father, forgive them. The word of God died on that cross. That's a great mystery. God cannot die. God is the source of all life. The primordial reality that underpins all of existence. God can't die. There's no force greater than God that can act upon him. But God humbled himself to become one of us. And as a man, he was vulnerable. He could suffer. He could get tired. He could get cold. He could be hungry. He could feel the lashes on his back and the thorns piercing his scalp, the nails being driven through his wrists. So God really did die on that cross. Why? Why would he do that? Jesus tells us when he says, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. God became one of us to lay down his life for us, to show us that there's no greater love than his. Because despite the many ways that we reject him, he still calls us his friends. That's how much our God loves us. So the immortal and eternal God died on that cross. And that's a paradox that we can't wrap our minds around, but that's okay. Because it stands to reason that God's ways would be unfathomable to us. God does lots of things we don't understand. He's God and we're not. But what we do know is that something happened to death on that day. When the author of life passed through its dark gates. Jesus died on a Friday, which was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. And because no work could be done on the Sabbath, his body was prepared quickly and laid in the tomb. And those who loved him weren't able to anoint his precious body in the way that they would have liked. And so on the day after the Sabbath, that is today, Sunday, Mary Magdalene, who loved Jesus very much, she came back to the tomb very early in the morning, before dawn, with precious oils to finish that anointing. But she discovered something there that rocked her to the core. The stone covering the entrance was rolled back and the tomb was empty. Now she thought what any one of us would have thought. Someone has stolen the body. After all of this, after all of the trauma of the past few days, this just added insult to injury. Someone stole his body. Her heart must have broken even more than it already was. And so in tears, she ran to Peter and John and said, they've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and John ran to check it out, and what they found there didn't look like a grave robbery. Instead, they found the burial clothes that had covered his face and body, neatly folded up and laid to the side, just like somebody had carefully made their bed after waking up 
from sleep. We still have those burial clothes. And along with the bloodstains that are on them, they bear the negative image of a crucified man that's been imprinted onto the fabric by some intense light source that science to this day can't explain. John writes that at that moment, he saw and believed. And in the days that followed, Jesus would appear to his disciples multiple times, and he would teach them many things before ascending 40 days later to be with his Father in heaven. He said he was going to prepare a place for us. The testimony of the disciples who witnessed the resurrection is recorded for us in the Gospels. Most of them would go on to endure a death like Christ's for their belief. And they did so happily, confident in their faith that death was not the end. It's been shown to them. They know that Christ had conquered death. And if we die with Christ, we will also rise with Christ. On that final day of consummation, when the purpose and the meaning of the universe and the purpose and the meaning of our lives will be revealed, on that blessed day, when we will be fully known and fully loved. Now that's also a story that you can believe. And it's the best kind of story. Because it's a true story. It's not just written in a book. It's written on the pages of history. And it's a love story. About you and me and God. And in this story, we discover the meaning of our life, which is to know, love, and serve the God who made the universe. But even more than that, we discover the good news that the God who made the universe knows, loves, and serves us too. That's why we're here today. That's why we're in this church celebrating the resurrection. And that's why we're here in the world at this time and at this place. Now we can shut our eyes to that truth and we can refuse to see the beauty that's right there in front of us. Or like John, we can gaze into that empty tomb with open eyes and we can see and believe. Christ is risen, alleluia. He is risen indeed, alleluia.